so let's read God's word. Uh, we're in First John uh, chapter two, and this is verse twelve. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen, and the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, I have a friend who I was in Christian leadership for the whole of the 19 years that uh, I worked in Carnmoney. I actually know him from university. In fact, I know him before, from before that because he used to run cross-country against him when we were at different schools. He is one of the most courageous, one of the most committed, one of the most kindly Christian men I know. But when you would be sitting in a meeting with him, which usually I was chairing, okay, and at some point in the meeting, he would signal that he wanted to ask a question. You had absolutely no idea what the question was going to be. It would never appear to have any connection to what had just been said before or to the business that was about to follow. And once he had asked the question, everybody would just sit there and think, what was that? And it was just the way he was, and in fact still is. And if you met him, you would know that. And in some ways, I think John, who wrote this letter, is a little bit like that. Because so far in our study, we have been reminded, as Dave said a moment or two ago, of what we know, of what John and his generation experienced. He talks about in the early verses what we heard, what we saw, what we touched, and we've testified about it. And through their testimony, we have come to know these things too. And it's heady stuff. But then there comes these two short paragraphs I read a moment or two ago, right in the middle of 1 John chapter 2. John Stott in his commentary describes the first paragraph as an interlude and the second paragraph as a digression. And it, it's the way that it is. And, and, and actually in that first paragraph, there is a kind of a repetition. I don't know if you noticed on the way through, but he says something to three different groups of people and then he says exactly the same thing again, just in the next sentence, okay? I think in some ways, he's a little bit like King Julian in Madagascar. You know, I just said that, Maurice. And then he says it again. Anyway, it's just, if you know, you know. And so, actually, one of the commentators suggested that what happened here was that John wrote the first sentence, okay, and then he got up and went away, maybe to go to the loo or make himself a cup of coffee or answer a few texts on his phone. And then he came back. And so to get himself back into the flow again, he just said over again what he had said before he left. That may be so, it might not be so. And whatever connection there was in John's head 
between what went before and what is going to come afterwards, only John actually knows. And I've spent the last fortnight trying to figure out if there was a connection, and I, I couldn't see one, okay, but maybe I'm just thick. But the point about these verses is this. These two short paragraphs reveal a key element in living out what we have come to know. Because what we learn in these paragraphs, however they are connected or disconnected from what went before and what went afterwards, what we learn in these paragraphs is that our knowledge and assurance in the Christian faith is something we hold in constant tension. And tension is not necessarily a bad thing. Any of you who have ever crossed the Karakarid rope bridge were dependent for the safety, your safety in that experience on the whole principle of tension. It's a suspension bridge. Bridges built of brick or other material with arches carry the weight that is placed on them by compression. Suspension bridges carry your weight by tension. And that tension holds the bridge up and allows you to cross it safely. So tension is not necessarily a bad thing. And what we discover in these verses is that living the Christian faith is like walking on a suspension bridge. It's something we do in tension. First of all, we discover that we live it in tension in the church. Some commentators say that chapter 2, verse 12 seems more like how the letter should have started. John starts by saying, this is why I wrote these things. He explains that. And to do this, he divides the church up into three groups or maybe two. We'll come to that in a minute. Children, young people, and parents. Now, I know those aren't the words he uses, but to place what he said in the first century, in the 21st century, that's the way I need to say it. He talks to children, to young people, and parents. And the key thing to understand is that these groups are not about chronological age, but about spiritual status. They're actually metaphors. And commentators disagree about who these groups are, whether there's three or whether there's two. But here's one way to look at it. I'm not claiming final authority for this, but this is one way to look at the groups he refers to. First of all, children talks about little children, children, okay? John uses that expression over and over again in the letter. And when he uses that expression, it refers to the whole company of believers. It is one of John's favorite titles for who we are as people who believe in and follow the Lord Jesus. And what a wonder this is. Later on in chapter three, verse one, he'll say this. So see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's one of John's favorite terms to, to describe us. And, and those, in those uh, couple of verses, that begin our section today, he points out that we are children of God because we are forgiven and fathered. Sins have been forgiven. Our lives have been washed. And we have an identity now as children of God. We have a dad. 
And that's a really significant thing. Lisa and I were having a conversation during the week about a young person whom we know who faces quite a lot of difficulty in their lives in terms of establishing relationships and keeping those relationships. And probably one of the reasons why that is true of this young person is because they have never had a father figure in their lives. They have no male person with which to identify and with which to learn how a relationship might look. And it constantly creates problems and difficulties for them in other relationships. To be fathered, to have parents who love you is an incredibly significant thing in developing who you are. And that's what is true of us as believers. We are children of God, forgiven and fathered. And then there is the group called fathers. This is a metaphor for those who John Stott says, quote, have progressed into a deep communion with God. They are already consciously living in eternity. This is a group of people who know that the presence kindling within and around them is the presence of the one who was there from the very beginning. Dave mentioned that earlier in this introduction. The one who is so much more, in other words, than what we see of him in the record of the testimony of his people. That yes, in the scriptures and in this letter of John, we discover what John saw and heard and touched. And, and, and we understand that and it helps us to know God and to be established in our faith. But the God that we know by that is so much bigger than all of that. He is the one who is from the very beginning. And those who come to know him in this way have a winsome wisdom in their lives which makes them frequently spiritual parents. They are the kind of people around whose influence people keep coming to faith because there is something in their lives, something about the trajectory of their lives that means that they want to win the world. And that's not an age thing. On the 19th of November, 1971, I led my best friend, David, to faith in the Lord Jesus. I was 17 years of age. It's the first time I ever had that experience, the first of many such experiences in my life. And I could be really young the first time it happened. This is not an age thing. This is something about the trajectory and direction of your life that makes you want to win the world. Fathers, young men, when you need to raise an army, you need the young to enlist. And the people John refers to here are strong and they want to engage the enemy. They are David before the giant. You remember when David goes out to face Goliath in that Old Testament story and, and he is astounded and amazed that nobody else in the army is willing to do it. He looks at his older brothers and he looks at the people around them, their mates and the people he has grown up with and the families that he knows. He says, why, why are we standing here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? There was something in him that said, I need to engage this person because he's not just our enemy. He is the enemy of God. He is the enemy. 
And like David, these people that John refers to here have overcome. They're good at fighting the enemy. They win victories over him. They are like Stephen in the New Testament. Remember, what was it that distinguished Stephen? It was that he was able to engage with the minds of those in the local synagogue who were speaking out against the faith and and he was able to argue with them. He was able to put pressure on them and to demonstrate the folly and the emptiness of what they were saying. Admittedly, it did lead to have rather difficult and and, uh, painful death, but nonetheless, he was an overcomer. That's who he was. And that's the kind of person that John is talking about here. Young men who want to engage the enemy. And therein lies the tension we often experience in church life. The tension between those who want to win the world and those who want to fight it. And yet when you see times of special blessing in the church and in our world, you often find these two people together. You find Martin Luther, a fighter. Philip Melanchthon, his friend, the theologian of the early Lutheran movement, a winner, somebody who wanted to win the world by his winsomeness and his wisdom. And those two together were quite a combination. And often it is so. In the 19th century, there was a plumber from Yorkshire whose name was Smith Wigglesworth. And uh, he was a rough kind of man. He ran a successful business. He became a Christian. Wasn't probably the most significant thing he did. The most significant thing he did was fall in love with Polly Featherstone, whom he married and she became his wife. And she transformed his life because Smith Wigglesworth was a fighter And he spent all of his days uh, after he entered the ministry struggling with the enemy, fighting to see people healed and lives changed and transformed. That was who he was. He was aggressive in all sorts of ways in what God had called him to do. His wife, Polly, was quite different. She wasn't a fighter. She was a winner. It was she who saw what was in her husband, in this rough diamond of a man. She saw that something special was there. She encouraged him. She was a better preacher than he was, but she encouraged him to learn to preach and to get up in public and speak and to begin to exercise the ministry that he exercised. He was the fighter. She was the winsome one with the wisdom. And her life oozed it. She couldn't help it. She said to her husband one day, she said, I I love Jesus so much. I am so passionate about him that one day I'm going to leave you and go to him. And that's exactly what happened. She went out one evening, in the middle of a week, to conduct a meeting at church. She spoke. It was a significant meeting. At the end of the meeting, she collapsed and died before Smith could get to her. She just went These two combined together, the fighter and the winner. And often it is so whenever there is blessing in the life of the church because we live out our faith in this tension. I don't think there are three groups here in John's letter. I think there are only two. Children refers to us all. It's who we are. 
But then amongst us today, sitting potentially side by side, could even be husband and wife or best friends, could be a fighter and a winner. Somebody who wants to win the world and somebody who wants to fight it. And the point is, we need them both. And we live out the life of the local Christian fellowship in the tension of those two things. What has God called you to be? Because there's tension in the church and it's a good tension. And you're likely to be in your trajectory one of those two things. There's also tension in the world. Suddenly in the next sentence after John deals with these groups of people inside the church, he drops a nuclear device. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And to back up this incredible statement, he gives two reasons why that is so. He says, first of all, love of the world is incompatible with love of the Father. He said the world works on principles that are foreign to the life of God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You might translate that as something like desire and covetousness and arrogance. These are the things that make the world go round. Look at your television news screens. Look at your Facebook feed or your whatever. And you'll see this over and over again. These are the principles that life often works on. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are incompatible with the life of God. He isn't like that. He doesn't work like that. It isn't who he is. So it's incompatible with him. But it's also incompatible with who we are. John says we are bound for eternity. What do we want with that which is passing away? We're about ultimate things. Why are we so bothered about penultimate things? That makes sense, doesn't it? The idea that the world is is something that almost needs to be rejected. It makes sense and it has inspired a hundred Christian songs. Just a couple of weeks ago on uh, my YouTube, it constantly gives you suggestions of new videos and because I watch a lot of worship videos, so I keep getting those popping up. And, and one of these literally just came into my feet a couple of weeks ago. John Wilds, who leads worship at a congregation in Orlando in Florida, a new song called I Want Jesus. The song begins the, with the chorus, and here's the words of the chorus. Oh, I want Jesus. Oh, I want him. Oh, only Jesus. Take this world and give me him. And there are a thousand other Christian songs like that. Take this world and give me him. But there's a problem. The problem is that the same John who penned these words, do not love the world or the things that are in the world, also penned what is potentially the best known verse in the whole of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And there are equally a thousand Christian songs that take up from that verse. 
this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And there are a hundred other songs like that. So which is right? The answer is both. There is a tension here. And it is the tension that every pilgrim feels. Two summers ago, Lisa and I walked the pilgrim way from Rochester to Canterbury. We walked between 12 and 18 miles a day over five days to make our way to that destination. It was that summer in England that was absolutely unbelievable unbroken blue skies. It was so warm. The ground beneath our feet was so dry. The countryside was beautiful and we enjoyed it as we explored not just the countryside, but a new love that had been born in our hearts. And we carried with us on our backs everything that we needed in a rucksack. And we stopped each evening at a B&B or a pub or something like that for the night. One such stop in particular was just perfect. On the 27th of July, 2022, we stopped in Lenham, which is a small town you've never heard of. We hadn't either till we stopped there that night. We stayed at the Dog and Bear Hotel. I do not joke. It was a small hotel, a quirky kind of place in the rooms. Nothing was straight. The floors weren't level. The walls weren't straight. Uh, It was kind of an ancient building that probably was in need of some work. But what a beautiful spot it was. We went out and walked around. We, we, we went for an expensive meal. We had fish and chips. But it was fish and chips, one of those old style of fish and chip shops, the ones you could sit in, the ones you could get bread and butter and tea with your fish and chips. And we did that, and then we walked around the village, and it was beautiful. It reminded Lisa of a village she had lived in in the south of England uh, with her first husband and her kids when they were smaller. It reminded me of Killyleigh, where I'd had my first church. And we walked around, and it was just gorgeous. But the next morning, if we wanted to get to Canterbury, we had to get up and walk on. And that's the tension that every pilgrim feels to savor where you are, to savor the taste and the sound and the smells that are all around you in this beautiful world in which we live, but in the knowledge of the fact that though you savor them now, you have to keep moving on. You cannot stop and stay if you want to get to your destination. And that's the tension we live this life in, the tension between the world, its awesomeness, its beauty, the things that God has made, and yet the things that have been distorted and destroyed because of all that is wrong and evil about us. And at the same time, the ultimate destination to which we are headed. Every, every experience here is penultimate. Everyone, no matter how good, no matter how amazing, no matter how wonderful it is, it is a penultimate experience because the ultimate has still to come. I love the prayer that finishes the morning Lectio every Sunday because it captures perfectly the tension of the Christian life in the everyday. If you do the Lectio, you'll know this prayer. It comes up every Sunday morning. 
May this day bring Sabbath rest to my heart and my home. May God's image in me be restored and my imagination in God be restoried. May the gravity of material things be lightened and the relativity of time slow down. May I know the grace to embrace my own finite smallness in the arms of God's infinite greatness. May God's word feed me and his spirit lead me into the weak and into the life to come, the penultimate and the ultimate. May God's spirit lead me into the weak and into the life to come. Amen. And we live in that tension. We live in the church of the tension between the fathers and the fighters. And we need them both. And we live in the world in the tension between the penultimate and the ultimate. Do not love the world or the things. Do not give your heart to that, which ultimately is passing away. To savor it, to enjoy it, to experience the wonder of what life in this world means. Yes, that's one thing, but we're being led into the week and into the life to come. The constant tension of the two. And in one way, it couldn't be a better moment to come to the Lord's table than in the moment that we think about that tension because now we experience right now the reality of that tension in a moment or two. You're going to join a queue of people who are going to take bread and wine, eat and drink it together, and some of them are fathers and some of them are fighters. They could even be husbands and wives, best friends, or strangers you never met before, but you're going to stand in the queue beside them. One of them might serve you. And that's who we are. We have to learn to love one another. We have to learn to live in the tension between those two things. Those of us who want to win the world and those of us who want to fight it. That tension, it's real. And maybe as we join that queue, what we need to be saying is, Lord, give me a love for the people who don't think like I think. Who aren't made the way I'm made. Who don't see the world the way I see it. Teach me to love them too and to partner with them in what Central needs to achieve. And then we come to the Lord's table in the tension of the penultimate and the ultimate. The Lord's Supper is a penultimate experience. It won't be part of the life to come. Jesus actually said in the instructions around this meal that we do it until he comes. It's a penultimate experience. And we savor it because of what it means to us, the symbols of our Lord's sacrifice for us, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. We savor it. We give thanks for it. But we understand that it's not the ultimate, that one day that will be set aside because we will see him as he is. And John says, when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. Ultimate experience. Lead me into the week and into the life to come. And that's what we're about to do as we share bread and wine together, as we eat and drink in the presence of the Lord, as we experience the penultimate and the hope of the ultimate, as we live our lives in the tension of what it means to know God and to have faith.